You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another iced out episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and we are joined, as always, by your other co-host from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. It's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I question whether you know what iced out means. Cold. It means really cold, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure it does. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little chilly. Fine, yeah. I guess that works. The uh, weather has turned. Feels like fall here in the great state of Montana this week. Yeah, and as you know, uh, my wife is a Nazi about the heating costs in the house, so we keep it a uh, a balmy fifty eight in here uh, during the. It's not quite that cold, but yeah, you better bring your sweater when you come over here to record the podcast. Is what I'm saying. I should have brought a second jacket. <laughs> um. So yeah, we're we're in the midst of a uh, of a fairly inauspicious week of uh, MMA news this week with no uh, no live event. Um, but still plenty of topics to discuss. This week, as usual, the, the show comes to you in three rounds. Although I got to tell you, we got some uh, emails this week from people asking us why we don't do five-round shows. And we have done a five-round show in the past, have we not? Have we? I, I think, think we did. I don't think we have. And we talked about it. Did we, we never We talked do that? about it, but I, don't think, I think we both decided that uh, conditioning-wise we weren't up for it. Oh, wow. Okay, well... I thought we had done one. I was about to get on people's case for not knowing their history, but apparently they know it better than I do. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I so uh, I thought we had done one. Are you sure we did? <laughs> I mean, I think we talked very seriously about doing it, um, but no. I mean, oh. come on. That's a lot of topics. That is a lot of rounds. And we, we always go longer on each topic than we think we're going to. That's true. Anyway, three rounds this week. Uh, in round number one, what the fuck, John Jones and Chael Sonnen now? What the fuck? How many middleweights must the UFC's light heavyweight champion fight before somebody realizes he ought to be fighting bigger men, not smaller men? In round two, uh, drugs rule everything around me. After a fairly drugorific week in MMA, we'll discuss what the shit is going on. And in round three, Matt Hughes, we hardly knew ye. The man who at one time seemed like a, a lock to be go down in history as the UFC's most dominant welterweight champion uh, retired or made it official this week that he will be retiring. We're going to talk about his legacy and whether or not we will look back on him as we do the guys who used to play football in those leather helmets and striped sweaters. Yeah, back when the, the ball was just like a giant egg that they had to cradle against their, their, their body. All that plus Master Tweet Theater. Are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, week in and week out, we put the charge to you to send us your questions, comments, concerns in the worlds of world of mixed martial arts. And you do, as usual. So we'll be doing listener mail this week. Question number one comes to us from Brandon. He asks, if Strikeforce did go under, wouldn't that make Ronda Rousey a quote-unquote free agent? If so, would she go to Invicta, or would she maybe push for a female division in the UFC? Now, I assume that Brandon has been paying attention to what has been going on in uh, the UFC landscape as of late, and so I assume also that he will not be shocked when we say that the idea of Ronda Rousey becoming a quote, free agent, is ridiculous. I would be shocked if the UFC let her even think about walking away at this point, uh, you know, let alone actually do it. I think if if Strikeforce goes under and, you know, interestingly enough, I had not thought about this particular like causation. Uh, but if Strikeforce does go under, I think you probably would see a 
at the UFC get Ronda Rousey at least a fight or two in the octagon. Or just pay her to hang around and not, you know, get into any contract she can't get out of. Well, that's what they're doing now. Right? <laughs> well, and the thing is, too, if she did go to Invicta, I mean, again, we are getting into some really hypothetical shit here. But even if she did, if you look at the way Invicta has handled the fighters it has under contract now, uh, it's pretty cool about letting them go somewhere else if a bigger opportunity comes up. It's already done that with a couple fighters who wanted to go fight in strike force and got offers, and Invicta said, fine, go ahead and take it. Uh, you know, and then those fights didn't actually happen because strike force, what are you going to do? Uh, but yeah, even if, I mean, I don't see any kind of scenario where there's a serious bidding war for Ronda Rousey's services between Invicta and the UFC. Uh, and I would be more surprised if the UFC let Ronda Rousey go to Invicta than I would be if the UFC just fucking bought Invicta so that yeah. Ronda Rousey could fight people from there. Yeah, I agree. I would be more surprised if, if Ronda Rousey, uh, signed up for the military and went to fight our wars for us. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Hey, anything's possible to MMA, right? Yeah. She, at this point, I think might be the most high profile fighter in the UFC to never actually fight in the octagon because at this point she is just everywhere. She was on the back cover of the UFC magazine yeah. this past issue. And if you, when you go to, uh, if you go to a live UFC event, she, you just see her everywhere. She's just, I'm just saying like, you know what the terrorists hate, right? Is they hate women uh, who like show their hair and are also is? educated. Is that what all this trouble yeah, is about? Yeah, it's a lot of trouble about that. So she goes over there, flowing blonde locks, rips off some arms. The, the terrorists will quit. Day one, Ronda Rousey signs up. By, by day four, max, this thing is over. War on terror finished. I find that to be a very compelling foreign policy yeah. that you have, sir. That's pretty much the only foreign policy point I have, so it's got to uh, be a I good know. one. I know. Uh, question two this week comes from Joshua Derringer, who asks, what absolute beatdown was worse, Forrest Griffin or Stefan Bonner versus Anderson Silva? That's an interesting question, and one uh, maybe not phrased in those terms, but I, I seem to remember uh, photographer or air cameraman extraordinaire uh, uh, Casey Lydon asking this on Twitter afterwards, uh, you know, who did better against Anderson Silva, Stefan Bonner or Forrest Griffin? Uh, and my immediate reply was, it's kind of like asking which of the dudes that got killed by the predator, you know, Jesse Ventura or Carl Weathers did better because you know, they both got murdered by the predator. Kind of the same thing here. I mean, I guess if you just think about time spent in the cage, you know, Stephen Bonner was upright a little longer. He did. He, I don't know if pressing a dude against the fence counts as effective offense. He did land some punches, but that's because Anderson Silva put his hands down and, and kind of let him. Yeah. I would say like in terms of being a full-time participant in that guy's highlight reel for the rest of both of your natural lives, Forrest Griffin was probably worse because yeah. that's the one where you got the slow motion uh, scenes of yeah. Anderson Silva going like full matrix on him. Yeah. And then doing the little fadeaway jab to yeah. drop you. Yeah. But in terms of like actual beatdown, I would say Stefan Bonner kind of got it worse because that was the instance where Anderson Silva, I think we talked about this last week, was like, oh, this is where you want me? Your game plan is for to keep me against here against the fence? All right, fuck it. Let's do that. And still whipped your ass. Yeah. And I think even the end sequence of the fight, even though him dropping Forrest Griffin with that kind of like, just for fun punch. Yeah. Uh, and Forrest Griffin waving his arms in the no moss fashion. Yeah, that was that was pretty awesome. But the, the end of this fight, to me, was more of an indication of Anderson Silva just being like, I will end you now. 
yeah. just being like, okay, this this weird little like trip takedown and then a knee and you're done. And at least Forrest Griffin could tell himself, well, if we fought again, I would I would try a different game plan. I wouldn't just lunge in there with punches. I, I would do you know try a different approach. Whereas with Stefan Bonner, like you said, Anderson Silva was basically like, so what's the approach you wanted to use? Let's try that. I'll go ahead. We'll, we'll let you do that. And we'll see how it works out. So, yeah, it, it's a little bit more demoralizing in that sense. Question number three this week comes from Eric Kahn. He asks, with Eddie Alvarez's con- contract done with Bellator and Dana White interested in talking to him, do you guys think the best thing for Eddie to do is sign with the UFC, where he would be just another lightweight in, the, in that stacked division, or is re-signing with Bellator a better career move? Um, I would have to say that signing with the UFC's stacked lightweight division is always the better career move, especially if you're Eddie Alvarez, because at this point, you are highly regarded enough that if you are serious, that the thing you want most out of the rest of your career is to prove that you are one of the best lightweights in the world, which is what Eddie Alvarez has said. You can't really do that in Bellator. The only place that you can do that is in the UFC lightweight division where you will get to fight the other top-ranked lightweights in the world, aside from Gilbert Melendez, who Yeah, I guess we're not even going to talk about whether he should sign with Strikeforce, huh? We talked about that already. <laughs> okay, well, I think, though, the, the premise of this question, or at least some kind of the subtext of it, seems to be that Eddie Alvarez is not good enough to be the, you know, one of the cream of the crop in the UFC's lightweight division. Yeah, I guess right? you could read that into, into it here. But, I mean, the, well, there are I mean, the other subtext of the question is that there will be some kind of bidding war over Eddie Alvarez where I think we all know what will really happen is the UFC will say, we will pay you this much. And then Eddie Alvarez will say yes. Well, I would think that there would be, there's got to be some incentive in there for Bellator to want to try and retain him because it's like the, Bell, the big Bellator you know, moment in the, the Spike TV spotlight hasn't come yet. Right. And if by the time you get there, you, know, you lost one of your more intriguing fighters, uh, that's not necessarily that great for you. So they're going to they're try a little bit. But again, they just don't have the, the ability to to offer him all the things that, that the UFC does. Uh, but again, it seems like as if, like he's acting that, like Eddie Alvarez is assuming that if he goes to the UFC, he's just going to be another win some, lose some light, lightweight, which I would think Eddie Alvarez probably thinks that he's going to go to the UFC and be goddamn champion. Everyone thinks that. Yeah. I think that. I think <laughs> I'm going to be the UFC lightweight champion just as soon as I sign that contract. The weight, the weight cut's not going to be easy. No, that'll be tough. That'll be <laughs> yeah. tough. Uh, but I, I guess it's, we, if we are thinking about it from the position that Eddie Alvarez is most likely thinking about it, then yeah, then there's no reason not to go over there to the UFC because you got to think that you can beat those guys. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah, and if you stay in Bellator, like the best case scenario for you as Eddie Alvarez, if you stay in Bellator, is to just like continue to look unbeatable against a second tier of opponent. And the worst case scenario is that you make other guys look good. You know, just like, like he Michael did for Chandler. Michael Chandler. Yeah. Uh, so I think it, it's kind of like it's it's one of the reasons why I say that I can't imagine a situation where Eddie Alvarez stays with Bellator unless Viacom suddenly takes an interest in like starts giving that Key and Peel money. Yeah, they, yeah. they tap. What is that? What Some is Stephen Dana, Colbert money? What is what does uh, Dana White always say? They're sitting on five billion in cash. <laughs> like uh, uh, if they give him. You know, one of those billions or something. I don't know. Maybe he'll he'll consider staying with Bellator. But for me, the only move is is for him to come to the UFC if if 
he is serious that one of the things he wants to do or the main point of the rest of his career should be to, to prove that he is the best or one of the best lightweights in the world. You think it's comfortable sitting on $5 billion in cash? Does it matter at that point? <laughs> I mean, you're, I don't know. You're kind of you'd be up there pretty high, I would think. That doesn't sound comfortable to me. Anyway, that's why question, I, I sit around on about forty bucks. It's, it's, <laughs> forty it's bucks really in nice. cash. Yeah. Uh, uh, question four this week comes from Dan Simons, who asks: At what point does longevity hinder a fighter's legacy? For example, would you prefer to see Anderson Silva fight John Jones and Chris Weidman and then retire, or should he continue indefinitely and risk ending his career like Fedor and Liddell? That's a good question. I mean, I, I was thinking it was going to go another way about. You know, at what point does longevity hinder your health? You know, that where you can stick around too long for your own good in that way. Because legacy-wise, I feel like we all understand getting old. Yeah. Like, we, we can look at that and be like, like, I don't think we're going to, if Anderson Silva lost to John Jones or Chris Weidman at, you know, in his late 30s, I don't think people would be like, see, he was overrated from the start. I knew it. I mean, some people would be like that because that, there's always some asshole on the internet. But... I think most of us would be like, well, that was going to happen eventually if you stick around long enough. We understand, and it does not take away from what he accomplished up until that point. I mean, most people just seem like they want to stick around until they have to find out the hard way that they can't do it anymore. So legacy-wise, I mean, it's always one of those sad things, when, especially for a fighter, when he sticks around and takes a bunch of bad beatings that he doesn't have to take. Uh, you hate to watch it. Um, but it's almost in like this bittersweet way, like part of it's the the final act of the performance in some way it's just it's become so archetypal we're used to that from fighters right yeah and i think in in a perfect world you know everyone wants to do the john elway and walk away after you've won two super bowls but almost no one does that yeah and so, so you do the brett Favre thing where you hang around and show your dick to people <laughs> right yeah i was gonna say the joe montana thing where you go play for the chiefs oh, which yeah. i think is about equivalent to showing your dick to people on the <laughs> is it not uh, you know, and, and I don't think it hurts too many guys' legacies that badly. I, we've said before, I've talked before about how I do think it hurt Fedor's legacy a little bit, but that was because much of his, like, aura as a fighter was based around his his indefeatability, which is not a word, but I just made it up, uh, or, like, his undefeated streak. You know, he, he had this mystique built around him that no one could beat him, so for him to go out and, and lose a few fights the way he did really did kind of kind of put a damper on his legacy. But, I mean, in terms of guys like Liddell or or Randy Couture or even Tito Ortiz, I feel like those are guys who who all arguably stuck hung around too long. But if you're going to make a list of, like, the top five light heavyweights of all time, they're probably all still in there yeah. somewhere. So I think, like you said, we do uh, – we give guys the benefit of the doubt a little bit towards the end of their, their career that – that they're getting older and, and you know, in, in a lot of ways. In the, cases, in the case of Anderson Silva, maybe more human, although we yeah. certainly haven't seen that much of that well, I mean, to this then, point. Like, physically, I think the thing is, like, you look at a guy like Big Nog, right? Like, he still went out and won, um, but that man is breaking down. You know, he's going to yes. stick around because he can, I guess. He's, if he's going to keep winning fights, how can you tell him to go home? Uh, but there's the, the bill's going to come due there, uh, and... That's the thing I worry about more than like how are we going to think about this guy when he's gone is what kind of shape is he going to be in when he's you know, 45? Well, on that disappointing and uh, depressing note, that'll do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question for future weeks, you can uh, email the podcast. You can go to our website, comaineventpodcast.com and click the link at the top of the page that says 
email the podcast. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and kick off round number one, which starts right now. Well, Ben, I hope that you didn't think that the light heavyweight division was going to return to some semblance of sanity after John Jones survived a scare but ultimately disposed of Vitor Belfort in his last outing. Uh, because now it's been announced that in his next fight, his next 205-pound title defense, uh, John Jones will take on Chael Sonnen, but not before the two of them host or coach, I guess you could say, against each other on season 17 of The Ultimate Fighter. Ah, uh, what the fuck, man? What the fucking fuck? Seriously? This is what we're doing now? We gotta we gotta get the reality TV show ratings up, so... Alright, let's bring in Chael Sonnen and John Jones, and then, uh, in the end, we'll use this title belt as a reality TV prop. That's basically what we're doing here. Right? Well, that is a harsh indictment, sir. Okay, well, here's the thing. I, I feel like... This has been debated a lot, of course, as usually happens. Uh, big news broke the day after uh, we recorded our podcast, so we had to wait all week here to talk about it. You know, I see a lot of different takes on this uh, from fans, uh, from the media. The way I know that it's a bad idea uh, is the argument seems to be between one camp of people saying, oh my God, this is a terrible idea, and another camp of people saying, but it's one of many terrible ideas or it's not the absolute worst idea or like, Hey, there've been plenty of bad ideas and, and it didn't, you know, didn't ruin anything permanently. So therefore it's fine. Like there's, it's between those two people. It's not between anybody who's like, this is a bad idea. And somebody else being like, no, this was the most awesome, logical, sensible idea. Like, I mean, no one is out there saying, like, yeah, no, this is the fight we were all waiting to see. It's John Jones against the guy who has never won a fight at light heavyweight in the UFC. Like, that's the part. And I feel like if he did not, if, if John Jones was not coming off a win over a bulked up middleweight, maybe it wouldn't seem quite so absurd. Maybe it, wouldn't, it would seem like, okay, here's one weird fight rather than here's another weird fight right after a previous one. Like, at this point, it just starts to seem like a pattern of making light heavyweight title fights for the sake of convenience like we start with the date first and then see who can make it you know we call around see who's, who's going to be available who can get people to watch a reality tv show that has flagged in the ratings and then that's how we make a decision not you know who has fought their way there yeah i think a couple of different things i think you know probably the most positive thing i can say is that if you were trying to come up with quality hosts for the Ultimate Fighter reality show, like John Jones and Chael Sonnen, pretty solid pairing in order, you know, just in terms of, of having those guys go out there and put on good TV for a few weeks. Also, though, I'm not sure that that is actually going to fetch you any kind of rebound in the ratings. And even if it does, I think it will be fleeting. Yeah. I mean, I, could... I think it will there'll, there'll be a, a ratings rebound for this season. I, I just don't think it'll extend beyond this season. Yeah, I could see them getting a, a like a, a decent bump, like returning the ratings to some kind of semblance of respectability because right now they're, they are not there. They're down around what? 600,000, I think was the, the low point for the last episode that, uh, that aired two weeks ago. Um, 
but I mean, I feel like that's a that's a, a, a denial. Like, it, I feel like the producers of the show are kind of in denial about what the problem with it is, and may, or maybe I'm just wrong about what the problem with it is. But as a guy who who is the the target audience for the show, I feel like the problem with it is is that I've seen it 15 and a half <laughs> times already, and so and by the time Chael Sonnen and and John Jones show up, I will have seen it 16 complete times. So to me, finding a uh, a pair of compelling coaches and moving it to a new night are both good, but they're not, they don't service the actual problem with the show that is the ultimate fighter. Well, it's also like if we start making this justification that, Hey, well, these are two interesting guys who people would want to see fight and want to see on reality TV. Then it's like, ah, you know what else would be good? Uh, Chael Sonnen and Louis CK. That would be an entertaining guys season are both funny. of reality TV. You know, I mean, it's MMA, I think, fight sports in general struggle with this balance between, you know, sport and entertainment uh, way more so than other sports where it's like, hey, you know, we're set up the league and then uh, whoever wins, wins and we just go from there. But it's kind of like saying like, all right, well, we wanted to do the Super Bowl on this date. One of the teams couldn't make it. So we looked around and said, which team has a fan base that will buy tickets and merchandise? Let's get them in here. Uh, I mean... I understand that some of that is always going to be part of the fight business. And you can justify it by saying like, oh, well, boxing has done tons of bullshit like this in the past. Yeah, but isn't that one of the things we want to try and avoid with MMA? I mean, no one is saying like MMA should try its best to do exactly what boxing has done. No, that's a fact. Yeah, I mean, it seems like people are using these justifications of like, just because this is this has been done before bullshit has been done before and the world didn't end therefore everything is permitted therefore we should nothing matters anymore everything's all bullshit anyway uh screw it let's let's all just you know plod forward and swallow whatever spoonful the, the ufc shoves in our faces there and the thing is too when making the case like hey this is a like with stefan bonner anderson silva it's a fun fight it's a fun fight it's a fun fight right and it worked because we're like okay yeah it's late notice, had to do something, so you put this fight together. It was interesting to watch. Fun fight. You can't keep doing that. No, no, I <laughs> Everything think Everything right. can't be I a fun fight. I was just going to say, like, irrespective of, the, of what's going on with the reality television program, I think you're right in saying that this fight is undermined a little bit by the fact that we just had a quote-unquote fun fight between Anderson Silva and, and Stefan Bonner, and before that we just had a quote-unquote fun fight between Vitor Belfort and and John Jones. Yeah. So it seems a little, yeah, it's, it's, I think you're right. It seems a little strange. I'm not one of these guys that's going to come out and tell you that I feel like this undermines the entire sport or it will be like, have some kind of lasting effect on, on mixed martial arts. I think that it'll be a fight that, that people will watch. And so in terms of a pay-per-view number, I bet it'll do okay for the UFC. Uh, I believe it will be quickly forgotten after that, just because in terms of like an actual physical matchup, I feel like it's almost less compelling than John Jones, Vitor Belfort, because as the, you know, the old cliche is that styles make fights. And I think that Chael Sonnen's particular style is just a disaster against John Jones. Yeah, I don't, I think so too. I don't think he will be able to take him down. I don't think he'll be able to strike with him. Yeah. He doesn't have the one punch power of a Dan Henderson or even a Vitor Belfort. Uh, it lacks the the submission game off his back that almost shocked John Jones against Vitor Belfort. Yeah, it, there's not much reason to think that uh, it'll be super competitive. And also, this one, it wasn't 
it's not a short notice thing where they had to scramble to come up with something, anything, uh, to save an event. We're talking six months down the road here. Right. That's April. How, yeah. That's it will, in fact, looking. be, I figured this out uh, uh, this week, and I think it was 16 months between have, getting actual light heavyweights, shot a shot at the light heavyweight title because of the two, we're going to have Vitor Belfort and Shell Sonnen, two middleweights yeah. in there. So, Well, and here's where I start to think about, uh, remember the uh, nuclear physicist who wrote us a question a couple weeks back about trying to explain to his friends uh, I believe he was a nuclear physicist, maybe also a congressman and circuit right. court judge. Clearly, I don't remember that because I thought we had done five rounds. So <laughs> I obviously don't remember <laughs> he, what he we do from one week question, to the next. Uh, and I can't remember his name now, but he wrote in with the question about, you know, trying to explain his fandom and love of MMA to his friends and sometimes feeling a bit ridiculous doing it. And here's one of those situations where I imagine that that poor, poor CIA agent sitting around with his friends and being like, okay, so now John Jones, who is the best light heavyweight in the world and pound for pound, one of the best fighters in the world, is going to fight this guy who lost twice in his attempts at the middleweight title and has never won a fight in the UFC at light heavyweight. But, you know, he says a bunch of wacky shit, man, and it's awesome. He's funny. And there's a reality TV show involved. Like, once you start explaining that, once you lay it bare and, and try to put it out there to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, it sounds absurd. It sounds like, you know, some kind of bullshit survivor biggest loser with a sport competition at the end, you know? Yeah, to me, like one of the most telling parts was when we were all on the conference call and somebody uh, asked Dana White about uh, Dan Henderson. And they were like, why not Dan Henderson in this spot? And Dana White's two responses were, A, I don't know what's going on with Dan Henderson's injury, and B, I don't know if Dan Henderson would even do the Ultimate Fighter again. So I think that the takeaway from those two answers is, no, you didn't even ask Dan Henderson. Yeah. Like, you didn't even come close to asking Dan well, Henderson. Well, we know that Dan Henderson, like, it's not like, I don't know what's happening with his injury as if, like, what, that he might never be able to fight again? Because he's, he's got a fight coming up, right? And we're also talking six months down the road, so presumably he could be okay by then, at least. Uh, and also, yeah, I don't even know if he would be willing to do this thing is another way of saying, like, I didn't ask him, but, I mean, I, would, I thought he'd, he probably wouldn't be into it. I didn't. I thought about calling him, but then I was like, nah, he doesn't want to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the other I point that, that they made time and time again on the conference call was that all the other light heavyweight contenders had turned down a fight with John Jones. But I don't think that they turned down this fight with John Jones. I think yeah. they turned down the short notice fight yeah. with John Jones. Tell Leona Machida, to... you want to fight John Jones in six months? Yes. Yes, yeah. he does. And, I mean, you pulled Chael Sonnen out of one fight to get him to, to go on the reality show and. and then fight John Jones. So you could easily pull, you could justify pulling Dan Henderson out of a fight or Leona Machida out of a fight or Alexander Gustafson out of a fight, whatever. I mean, if that's what you were going to do anyway, why not do it with a guy who's an actual light heavyweight? It's also to me, though, the thing like, the more you just completely disregard any concept of somebody earning a title shot, and I get it, we're going to do this thing every time something like this pops up and we're like, well... This isn't fair to give a guy who didn't earn it a shot over guys who have earned it. And then some, some brilliant philosopher is always going to say that life isn't fair, uh, which is what you say when unfair shit happens to other people. <laughs> when unfair shit happens to you, you bitch and you complain about it and you look around to see who is responsible for making sure that shit doesn't happen or making sure that there's some punishment involved. No one gets like scammed out of their life savings. It's like, oh, well, life isn't fair. Uh, but when other shit happens to other people, yeah, fine. But... It, 
now we have to look at any time the UFC tries to use this as a selling point. Like, oh, these two guys are going to fight, and the winner is going to fight for the light heavyweight title. Or, you know, when they had that Fox fight where four light heavyweights were on the card, you know, Machida and Bader and Shogun and Brandon Vera, and whoever wins most impressively, that's the guy who's going to get the fight for the title. Like, the UFC loves to use that, like, dangle that carrot out there as a marketing tool, but then completely ignore it if it doesn't suit its needs later on. So how many times can you do that before nobody gives a shit anymore when you say this is a number one contender fight or a title eliminator fight? Like those words just become empty and you won't be able to use that to, to drum up interest in any fight. Yeah, you're right. And all of that is to say nothing about the facts that one of these two guys is going to get hurt and they won't actually fight. And that <laughs> the last time we were excited about a guy they were going to have on the ultimate fighter and thought it was going to be really great was Brock Lesnar. And it turned out that the exact worst way to try to promote Brock Lesnar was on a season of reality television. So hopefully it turns out better than that. Anyway, that is our discussion in round number one about uh, Chael Sonnen and John Jones coaching against each other in on the season 17 of the ultimate fighter. What in, the fuck in oh, round yes. two, we'll be talking about, about uh, the another drug-filled week of mixed martial arts news. But first, we're going to have the self-proclaimed world's leading theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock, is going to come in and lead us in another rendition of Master Tweet Theater, which starts now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. It's that time again, people. We welcome back friend of the podcast, self-described, noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am ready. You, you know, you don't really look ready, actually. No, I edited out some words from that expression. I've been hanging out with women of low character all week. Well, hey, I'm just, I'm glad to hear that you're making friends. Oh, I, yes. I, I will associate with virtually anyone, <laughs> as my presence on the CME podcast will suggest. All right. Well, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel will read us off one by one a series of five tweets from someone in the MMA community. Chad and I will attempt to guess the tweeter in question, uh, and then Sir Nigel will make some witty quips and disappear back into the ether. So, Sir Nigel, if you're ready, hit us with the uh, number one tweet. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <clears throat> the mistletoe is thick and low. The mistletoe is thick and low. I see you've got some new warm-ups. Tweet the first. Always learning, sir. Tweet the first. The best curve on a girl is her smile. LOL, just kidding. I'm an ass guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh, pretty good. Man. Oh, okay. You know... I always I feel like I don't give this tweeter credit when he has some hilarious tweets. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and guess him now, Danny Boy Downs. Oh. I am going to go simply by feel that Miguel Torres is an ass man. That would have been my, my second guess. I mean, yeah, that's the one part I didn't consider is who do I think is an ass man out there. But I guess, you know, we got to take our chances. Sir Nigel? No, you fools. It is the poet Philip Baroni. God damn it. What the fuck, man? Oh, I mean, that just didn't seem out there enough. It didn't seem poetic enough. It seemed like like maybe a tweet that he had written and rewritten. Because usually his have a real off-the-cuff feel, if you know what I'm saying. That one seemed pretty polished. It's possible he heard it from someone else. (laughs) Just possible. Uh, All right, well, I guess we... Now that that's happened to us, uh, we can move on. <clears throat> Tweet the second. 
New baby, first day, first bath, hashtag in love, hashtag Yorkie, thinking about naming him Bowie. Wait a minute. Somebody, they got a Yorkie dog and are calling it a baby? That's what, That's how I read it. That's how I would heard it, I guess you would say. She's also hashtag in love. Well, it's oh, a she, well, I, it's a she. Well, Sir Nigel's just giving shit away here. As if calling a dog a baby suggested that it was, in fact, Minotaur. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then the question is, are we talking about a ring girl or are we talking about a fighter? Um, you know, I'm going to say we're talking about a fighter, even though my, my gut tells me this could be wrong. I'm going to say Misha Tate. Hmm, Interesting. I hope that I'm taking the low-hanging fruit here by saying Ring Girl, Ariani, Celeste, Lopez, Concepcion. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Yes. Well, it is, in fact, Ariani, Celeste, Lopez, Concepcion, Gasset. <laughs> well, I apologize to Misha Tate. <laughs> Tweet the third. <clears throat> this is my medical marijuana license. I don't take... Other medication, so don't hate. Photograph of medical marijuana license. Well, you know, I, I know for a fact <laughs> which tweet this is. I'm interested in your reading of it. You seem to interject a pause. I would even say a pregnant pause where I don't think there is one. Could you do that, that part again? Yes, sir. It is a dramatic reading. This is my medical marijuana license. I don't take other medications so don't hate picture of medical marijuana license what are you trying to suggest i am trying to suggest that marijuana impairs your ability to speak and reason <laughs> well okay I, I guess that's a topic for another day uh but that's matt riddle yeah i would be a fool to guess anyone else matt riddle it is in fact matt riddle however that does not bear on whether either of you is in fact a fool <laughs> touche sweet <clears throat> the fourth Shannon Aloha followed. One more time. Shannon Aloha followed. Chad, you want to go first here? Wow. Um, no, not really. I guess since I know he lives in Hawaii, Chris Liebman. Huh. Okay. Uh, would I be correct in assuming that this tweet is all in caps? All caps and larded with exclamation points, sir. Well, my go-to move when it's all caps is to say Pat Barry. No, he doesn't live in uh, Hawaii, but other people have been known to use the word aloha every once in a while. All caps. I mean, I'm doing the math and I'm coming up Pat Barry. Both fun guesses, gentlemen. Both, as usual, wrong. It is, in fact, BJ Penn, who mm. loves Hawaii in capital letters. Well, come on, BJ Penn. Let's let's try and not be a walking cliche here. His whole first name is capital letters, sir. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. The world feels different when most of the people around you are asleep. God, that's creepy. Extremely creepy, sir. Wow. And that's it? No, <laughs> no lighthearted hashtag to kind of make us feel a little easier about that? No, sir. A cryptic tweet while you were asleep. You know, I would say the poet Bella Baroni, but because I know that he is frequently out and about when the rest of us are sleeping. Uh, but uh, now we've already heard from him. I'm going to say another vaguely creepy, funny guy, Sean McCorkle. Hmm. I am going to go with a guy who has been very vocal about his insomnia and his struggles with it. Lightweight champion Benson Henderson. Huh. 
Hmm. Both tales of struggling and or weirdness, both incorrect. Damn it, it is in fact Joe Rogan, uh. who sees you when you're sleeping and mostly knows when he's awake. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've been kind of creeped out and disappointed in humanity, I guess that brings a close to another edition of Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? Well, sir, tomorrow I will begin re- uh, rehearsals for the theatrical sequel to Judge Dredd, Appellate Court Judge Dredd. <laughs> I got to tell you, that does not sound like as much fun. He has almost no tolerance for crime, sir. However, <laughs> in certain cases where the evidence is inconclusive, he, he will consider. Well, I feel like uh, there is absolutely no chance that your career is going to take off and we won't be able to get you back on a future episode of the podcast. So good news for everyone out there. That was theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock, and this has been Master Tweet Theater. Good day, sir. Round two. Been lots of drug-related news going down this past week. Uh, on, on the conference call that we spoke about during round one for the Ultimate Fighter season 17, we saw John Jones uh, kind of rag on Chael Sonnen for his use of testosterone replacement therapy in, white, in what might have been considered, I guess, John Jones's best points had we been like scoring it like a debate. Those seem to be the, the, his best moments on the conference call. Uh, we had some quotes surfacing from Victor Conti this week where he said that uh, as much as 50% of, of UFC fighters are on uh, performance-enhancing drugs, at least that's what he believes. We had uh, Shane Carwin and Roy Nelson squabbling over supplemental testing for their upcoming fight. We had Rosie Sexton apparently retiring from MMA after her opponent pulled out of their fight uh, following some drug testing. Um, and meanwhile, we had Matt Riddle busted for marijuana, which he apparently has a prescription for, as well as Francisco Rivera testing positive for an over-the-counter stimulant. Don't forget Jake Shields uh, oh, that's testing right. positive that's for right. some mystery substance. Uh, UFC 150, I think it was, uh, which is not telling us what it was, which is always a bad move because we're going to assume it was the worst possible thing you could possibly get your fucking hands on. So you might as well. But telling us that he was suspended, he was the first person to like, he broke the news himself, right? That he was suspended. Well, I mean, if you're going to do that, you might as well tell it. We're going to assume it was steroids unless we hear something else. So, and even if it was steroids, if you tell us, then at least you get some points for that. Also, and then at uh, UFC 152 in uh, Toronto, uh, we hear news that there was a somebody got a therapeutic use exemption for testosterone, but the UFC would rather keep it as some kind of like English manner mystery guessing game where we gather everyone in the study and try and uh, figure out who it was. Uh, I think the finger probably it gets pointed at the young dinosaur in that in that situation. Vitor Belfort with the candlestick in the observatory. <laughs> yeah. Well. It does seem like just very recently all this stuff kind of piling up. And that doesn't even take us back. I mean, if we wanted to go back further, we remember when we were freaking out about testosterone when uh, the last time the UFC heavyweight championship was defended, uh, the original opponent got pulled out for having too much testosterone and the replacement opponent ended up having a prescription for testosterone. So Junior Dos Santos just could not get away from that shit. And I think this past week the UFC confirmed that the original opponent will fight for the heavyweight title when he returns from his suspension. Well, so yeah, lots of drug news out there, I guess yeah. is, is the point of the previous three minutes. <laughs> yes. We just spent recounting it. Yeah. See, that's, th- and that's just like 
just talking about for a few weeks. For and that's the months. stuff we know about. That's, yes, exactly. <laughs> that's the stuff we know about. That does not even count uh, all the people who are getting away with shit or at least getting away with it for now. Well, let's talk about Victor Conte first because I feel like the discussion we just had uh, kind of not necessarily proves his point, but does in fact underscore the fact that we've had a lot of a lot of drug stuff going on in the sport recently. Uh, he said a couple of interesting things. He he said that he thinks that as many as 50% of top-level MMA fighters are on steroids, and he also said that uh, a, what, do you, what did he call it? A top Northern California yeah, I have, uh, I have fight club. The, you should read the, the quote. quote. From his speech to the Association of Ringside Physicians at their annual medical seminar, he said, I talked to a lot of athletes out there about who's doing what. They're frank with me, partly because it's a two-way street. Give an example. One of the top MMA training centers in Northern California that has a number of UFC fighters, and I asked the owner of the facility and the head trainer what percentage of his athletes, the 16 UFC athletes that he had, were using drugs because he was asking me to help some of his athletes, and I said, well, I can't help athletes that are using drugs. He wrote a list out. Long story short, eight of the 16 were using performance-enhancing drugs. So I think this is a small sample size, but I think these are, are all some of the top fighters in the UFC, so I think it's rampant. Now, he does not specifically name uh, a Yeah, but a he does a really bad job of not naming it, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, as soon as you say owner and head trainer. Yeah, with that many UFC fighters. Uh, yeah, In Northern California, it, where there's only like four top fight camps anyway. Three yeah, or four. that's when people are going to assume he's talking about AKA, the, the American Kickboxing Academy, whether he is or not. I mean... If, if he's not talking about him, then it's kind of a screw job on AKA because it does come off sounding like that. And again, it's hard to know what to make of what Victor Conte says because he has a little bit of a credibility problem on account of the huge doping scandal uh, he was involved in. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how much we want to, we want to take from that. Uh, and also it's one of these things where it's like, well... I talked to my doctor who told me he thought all those dudes were on steroids. Right. You know, so, yeah, what do you do with that kind of stuff? But also, I mean, it's pretty clear that whatever we're doing right now in MMA to crack down on the actual performance-enhancing drugs uh, is not working very well. Especially right. because we're giving people prescriptions to use a steroid. Uh, right. And to use a steroid in testosterone that is a fast-acting steroid that gets out of your system really quickly. That uh, the difference between... You know, cheating and not cheating depends on a couple days uh, window of like when the guy is tested. And I remember uh, the grudge guys talking about Nate Marquardt when he was trying to get his levels down in, in time to fight in Pennsylvania. Uh, and obviously he didn't. He got fired from the UFC over it. Uh, they were talking about how quickly the levels were coming down. How, you know, one day way too high. You know, nowhere near where he needed to be. And But then they looked at it and said, well, maybe tomorrow though he'll be fine. And the levels for that stuff come down so quickly. Meanwhile, weed, which stays in your system so much longer than it is active, is not a performance enhancer in any meaningful sense of the word. And poor fucking Matt Riddle, who's looking all goofy on his medical marijuana license like he always does, tweets out that picture of that. Still, he goes to Calgary, gets busted, has his win overturned because of some weed. Yeah. It's just fucking insane. We're allowing people to use testosterone and we're busting people for weed. Yeah, no, it's it seems crazy. And uh, I agree with you that Victor Conte does have a, a, uh, a credibility problem. And I cannot presume to sit here and tell you to what extent 
mixed martial arts fighters are using performance enhancing drugs or whether or not is that it is at some crisis level. But whenever I think about it, I always return to a couple of factors and not to say that it does have that there is a, a crisis or, or an epidemic of, of performance enhancing drugs in the sport. But I think that there are a couple of factors that could contribute to that uh, environment. And honestly, there are a lot of factors. But the two that that I always think about are that number one, as you alluded to, Uh, A lot of the commission testing is a joke because Mm -hmm. when you know, I've heard it said that when you know exactly when you're going to get tested and exactly what you're going to get tested for, it's not so much a drug test as it is an IQ test. Yeah. And if you get caught for doing uh, steroids or testosterone or whatever for by one of those tests that you know when it's coming, like you either don't know what you're doing, you're stupid, or somebody screwed up the process. Yeah, at some well, point, and especially with uh, with testosterone, uh, because the athletic commissions, when even the ones that do better testing, they don't do the carbon isotope ratio test that can detect the presence of synthetic testosterone. They just check and see what your testosterone levels are. So if you're good enough at it to get your your levels within the range. And the range is kind of ridiculous. I mean, most people are at one to one, and in Nevada, you can be as high as six to one, and you're fine. I mean, that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, and but as long as you can fall in there, they won't do any kind of test to tell whether or not some of that is synthetic testosterone. And those tests are out there, and they're available. They just either don't want to spend the money, or they don't think it's worth it. Uh, you know, Keith Kaiser has told me before that he thinks if he starts doing all that testing because of the funds he has, he would have to test fewer fighters. Right. Uh, and I mean, I guess you can make those arguments. The, I think what we've seen in MMA is that the state athletic commission system for, for regulating drug use in a sport is the worst system next to no system at all. Right. Because they just have such varying resources at their disposal. Uh, They don't always communicate well with each other about what's going on. I mean, you know, a guy can get suspended for some substance. They don't necessarily call up all the athletic commissions and tell them. Operating on a shoestring budget. Yeah. The other factor that I wanted to mention is that in this sport, by and large, generally speaking, not always, but most of the time, as much as 50% of the reported money that these guys get to take home depends on whether or not they win or lose. So when you've got these two factors, one that you think you can cheat and get away with it. And two, that 50% of the money that you make is based on whether or not you win or lose. I think that you create an environment where, uh, you could have an epidemic of cheating, you know, because think if you're a UFC fighter who makes, you know, 10 and 20, depending on whether or not you win or you lose, and you fight three times a year, that's a difference of making between $30,000 or $60,000 of reported income. And think about it if you're one of the guys, like, you're sitting around, you're reading the same articles on the internet the rest of us are, where it starts to seem like, fuck, everybody's doing it. Uh, and then what you you want to go in there and get in a cage fight with some dude who has a, a hormonal advantage over you who is like artificially enhanced like it would be really easy to talk yourself into thinking like well hey I'm not doing it because I want to cheat I'm doing it because I want to compete on a level playing field I'm trying to like even the odds here I mean I you could see that at work I remember uh, my freshman year of college, went to the University of Redlands uh, and played a little bit of football there, uh, just enough to figure out that I was not good enough to play football. And it was a Division three school. They didn't do any drug testing. 
I think you only got tested if you if you made it to the championship game, like the national championship game, which was just not even worth discussing uh, at that school. And so steroid use there was fucking rampant. And it was a thing where I felt really naive because I showed up and thinking like, man, these dudes must be hitting the gym hard. Look how many of these dudes are just fucking huge, muscular guys. And then one of my teammates told me like, dude, come on. Obviously, they're all on steroids. Like, and it was just rampant there because there, there was no testing being done. And if I had been seriously, I mean, I, I transferred to San Diego State and had a much better time in life. But if I had been serious about wanting to stay there for the f- whole four years and actually play on the football team, that's the moment when I would have been like, well, I need to get a hold of some steroids because there's no way I'm going to be able to compete with these dudes and earn a, a starting spot if I don't do it. Like, I think that's the worst part about it is that yeah. like, that kind of like hopelessness and cynicism infects everybody. It's like, I don't know if when it, when you lived in New York, have you ever tried driving no, in New I York? No, I never did. Yeah, never well, did. It was enough to just try to walk around. Yeah, I know. But every once in a while, like rent a car for some reason. And then when you have to drive the rental car back into Manhattan to, to, to return it, and you learn how like in New York City is a whole different set of traffic laws, like the traffic laws that you're expected to violate, the ones that other people, like everybody's cheating. You know, because the traffic is so bad and it's just such a, a killer atmosphere. Um, so you get this sense like, well, if I don't cheat, I'm falling behind. Right. I actually had a friend who played some football in the Canadian Football League, the CFL, and he told me a really, really similar story in that the Canadian Football League is, has a rule that every team has to have a certain number of Canadians on it. And so it has Socialism. a very, perf- uh, a very permissive attitude to the things that those Canadians do because, you know, there just aren't that many Canadians to go around. So, like, he told me that all of the Canadians on the, in the CFL are all on steroids because the, the league cannot do anything about it because they have to have them on the team. Anyway, to just return it to, to MMA, though, I've, you know, we talked about in the, in the first round, people are always saying stuff like, oh, do you think that this John jones Chael Sonnen fight is bad for the sport? And I always say no. But I feel like a, a couple of things that actually would be bad for the sport would be if it turned out that we have this huge uh, performance-enhancing drugs problem where if it turns out that 50% of the athletes are on, on some kind of PED – then your sport is dead, kind of. Because all it takes to kill the sport is for the arbiters of mainstream acceptance, you know, mostly the hosts of SportsCenter, to decide <laughs> that your sport is a joke. Well, and once they decide that, you're kind of dead in the water. I mean, you could make, I'm sure, and people will, like, you, how many NFL players do you think are on some kind of performance-enhancing substance? I think the thing that's going to really hurt MMA is how it's allowed in, in a lot of sense. Like, like, where if you let people use testosterone... Uh, and just because they got a note from their doctor, who is not an expert in uh, endocrinology or in who should be getting these kinds of prescriptions. And then the Nevada State Athletic Commission goes and has it checked out by another doctor who's not an expert and says, okay, fuck it. Uh, everybody, you know, let's break out the needles and everybody can shoot up with testosterone. That's the one where I keep waiting for the mainstream sports world to figure out what the hell we're doing and say, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Especially you're letting people use steroids before they go in a cage and try and beat each other up? That's insane. That's the thing that's going to hurt this. It is insane, and we've gone on far too long. Anytime you talk about performance-enhancing drugs, it's like putting a quarter in Ben Folks. He just, <laughs> just one of his favorite topics. Anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get out of here. The... Uh, the part of the show that By I feel out of like, here, you mean into the next round. Yeah, out of round two and into you round three. You confuse people. You confuse people. If people are listening to this show 
They're 45 minutes in. They know that there's still goddamn 15 minutes left. <laughs> They're not just going to think it's over. Well, they right? might think that the last 15 minutes is all ads, which we should do, by the way, I'm meaning to talk to you about this yeah. episode or the last 15 minutes is all not ads. Not to mention we'll rounds four and five, which are coming up at the end of the show. <laughs> Am I right? Anyway, uh, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week goes out to FX television executive Chuck Saftler, who joined the Ultimate Fighter conference call uh, this week to say a couple of things that I thought were kind of ridiculous. Number one, he said after they moved the Ultimate Fighter to a new night, he wouldn't say exactly which night it was going to be, but said, quote, Spike TV better watch their ass, <laughs> which makes me feel like everyone is just hanging out a little bit too much with Dana White. Here. <laughs> like, I feel it's okay for a fight promoter to say that kind of stuff, but maybe I'm just a fusty old uh, traditionalist. I, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable with my television executives <laughs> using know- that kind of language. Language. You don't want to hear like a like a Showtime executive talk about how HBO needs to watch their ass. <laughs> yeah, no, not up. really. The other thing he said was that he expects ratings for this season of The Ultimate Fighter to be quote unquote epic. Now, I guess it, it depends on what your definition of epic and how they relate to the ratings would be. But come on, Chuck Saffler, you fucking kidding me? <laughs> My, are you fucking kidding me? I am going to stick with the the drug topic uh, for this one. Just to zero in a little bit more, after the news came out that Matt Riddle had his win turned to a no contest because of marijuana, which he is a medical marijuana patient in Las Vegas. Seriously, if you haven't looked on Twitter at the photo that he posted of his medical marijuana card, do so right now. Uh, also, you know, we also, we have currently Nick Diaz sitting out, one of the most exciting and fascinating fighters in the sport, uh, away right now because of medical marijuana use. I'm just saying, in general, to, to the entire MMA regulatory community, are you fucking kidding me that we're still testing for marijuana? Why? It's not a performance enhancer. It stays in your system for so long that you can't even tell when the last time the guy used it, whether it has any effect on his, his recent training camp or his fight performance. It's just bullshit. Marijuana, we shouldn't even bother testing these for. These guys, they work out all the time. Uh, they come home. They can't drink or take any fun pills. You got to give them something. Give them something to keep them home and watching TV rather than trying to go out and hit the bars and get themselves into a lot of trouble during training camp. Testing for marijuana? Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Sounds like if they wanted to drink and take pills, they should have become professional writers. Uh, well, that's it for round number two. We're out of here, but don't worry. The show's not over. Round three is coming up right now. <laughs> Don't turn the show off thinking that it's over. We're about to get started in uh, round number three right now. Round three. Chad, in a recent interview with uh, Iowa's Daily Gate, Matt Hughes talking about his with MMA the Daily career, Gate? The Daily Gate. Wow. It's uh, practically like talking to the New York Times. That old gray lady, the, the gray daily lady gay. of Iowa, Iowa journalism. Uh, former UFC welterweight champion and UFC Hall of Fame inductee Matt Hughes said, quote, I've not announced my retirement, but right now it looks like I'm fully retired. The UFC still, the UFC still treats me well, so I can be retired. It's just funny. When God puts you on a road, you don't know where you're going. I have all the faith that he put me there, and I have to thank him for that. Now, that sounds like Matt Hughes, who has been, you know, kind of famously slow to actually say the words that will officially end his MMA career, getting as close as he's going to get to saying, you know, that's it. 
Uh, it's a little step past saying he wanted to be put on the shelf for a little while, and he's now at least using words like retired. Now that it looks like it's probably over for Matt Hughes, and, you know, not a moment too soon, I would say, what do you think we're going to make of Matt Hughes when we look back? Is Matt Hughes one of those guys who was the best of an era when people weren't very good? Did he Was he one of those guys who straddled uh, a couple eras pretty successfully? Uh, was he just overly preachy on the Ultimate Fighter? <laughs> what do you What do you think when you think Matt Hughes now? Well, I, I, I mean, I think I should say that there was a time in my life when I could essentially set my watch by the fact that Matt Hughes was going to beat the shit out of somebody once every yeah. three or four months. Pick him up, carry him around like a bag of fertilizer, and then plop him down. Yeah, I was. I had the good fortune of being in attendance at uh, the UFC when he fought Frank Trigg. Uh, for the second time, I think that yeah. was their rematch, largely considered to be, well, considered by me and considered by some others to be the greatest fight in UFC history. Yeah, that's the uh, first fight I was able to show my dad where he was like, okay, this is kind of awesome. Yeah, and one of the most amazing things I've seen live and in person, the moment in that fight where Hughes comes back from almost certain defeat and picks Frank Trigg up and carries him across the cage and then slams him. At that moment when Hughes like picked Trigg up, like everyone in the arena simultaneously stood up and almost simultaneously like said, what the fuck? But it was just like this gasp filled the arena and like everybody stood up uh, and it was awesome. As for how we're going to look back on Matt Hughes, I do feel like he may have been the product of an era where, you know, guys had not reached either the athletic, uh, ability that that I think you see in a lot of guys out there now who are at the top of the sport or really the understanding of uh of mixed martial arts and training and things like that certainly had not reached the point that it that it has reached today uh but I don't necessarily think that that devalues him because I think you can say that of almost all of the the great champions that we've had in the past I mean I I don't want to shatter anybody's dreams but I feel like if Chuck Liddell wandered into the current UFC light heavyweight division, he would not be the champion, nor would he really like probably even come close. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't, I, the fact that, that, that Matt Hughes came along at a time when, when a lot of guys weren't really that well-rounded and where maybe the American wrestlers had a leg up on people in terms of like how they trained and, and their level of fitness and how ready they were for this particular kind of competition. I don't necessarily think that that undermines his legacy in any way. You know, one of the things I think sometimes is how we, when we look back at a guy's record um, and we look at the dudes he beat with the same kind of hindsight as like, okay, well, hey, great. You know, you beat Gil Castillo and like Sean Shirk who ended up becoming a lightweight and, you know, you beat Frank Trigg a couple times. Big deal. Um, but at the same time, the champion is about beating the best who are around. And Matt Hughes is one of those guys who... You can't really look around and say like at too many people from that era and be like, well, Matt Hughes never fought that guy. You know, he he fought what they had. You, you can't you can't fault him for that. I mean, he he fought GSP, beat him once, and then you know didn't go so well for him after that. Uh, he got beat by BJ Penn, then came back and then lost again third time. But I, I mean, I don't. When you look at his peers, maybe they weren't the greatest, but of that era, I mean, he beat the shit out of the best guys. So. I mean, I do think we have to be careful of like going back in time and being like, well, hey, just because the dudes that Matt Hughes beat probably wouldn't even, a lot of them, some of them would not be capable of even hanging around in the UFC's welterweight division now. You know, it's like a bunch of the dudes Jim Brown ran over wouldn't play in the NFL now. 
that, that doesn't mean that we take away from his accomplishments. Uh, I wonder sometimes, though, if, like for Matt Hughes, if reality TV, like The Ultimate Fighter, stuff like that, wasn't maybe the worst thing that could happen to the way we think of him. Yeah, I, he really came off like an asshole on yeah, The Ultimate Fighter. That, I mean, stuff like that, like... I remember Matt Hughes seemed so awesome when you just watched him fight, you know, once every three or four months. Then when he was a coach on The Ultimate Fighter, and you're like, huh, Matt Hughes, still probably a pretty awesome fighter. Don't think I'd really want to hang out with him. Didn't really come off that well personally. Yeah, for, for and and that was like, that was early enough in the history of The Ultimate Fighter that, like, that was one of the first times we had seen that where a guy yeah. who had previously been like one of the big stars in the UFC and like, uh, I don't want to say universally loved, but a guy who was like kind of a fan favorite came onto this show, acted like an ass and then like got booed for almost the rest of his career because everybody, um, you know, uh, looked at him as an asshole from, from that time. It's a on. really sad thing. If the worst thing to happen to you is people got to know you. Yeah. You know? That, yeah. That is, uh, that's a shame <laughs> really. Um, and and to me, like uh, Matt, he, I I will gladly you know concede that he is not the most likable person in the world. Um, I don't think he and I could probably hang out and have a killer time. But to me, he always embodied uh, the the American wrestler mentality, and one is one of the first guys to come along to really exhibit that. Um, that kind of mentality, which if, if you don't know exactly what it is, the only thing you need to do is watch the ESPN documentary this season about Iowa wrestling, which came out, uh, you know, several years ago now, but I think you can find it on YouTube. Last time I looked, it was on there. And if you turn it on, it's just 15 guys all acting like Matt Hughes for two hours, which <laughs> is one of the greatest things of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, but yeah, just a sort of like headstrong, sort of cocky, knew uh, damn good and well that he had outworked everybody uh, or, or was at least stronger than everybody. And his skills fit this particular athletic endeavor uh, almost perfectly and, and and essentially would show no weakness at any time. Um, and that was kind of Matt Hughes in a nutshell all the way around. Uh, you know, when you talk about the way we devalue guys from the past by looking at them and saying, you know, he didn't really beat anyone that was that good. I feel like that's the kind of thing you can do to almost anyone yeah. from from the history of this sport. Like Chuck Liddell, not to keep ragging on Chuck Liddell. Yeah, you're really going after Chuck. <laughs> he, You know, he beat Randy Couture twice when, when he was the light heavyweight champion. But aside from that, like his list of wins is not doesn't light the world on fire. You know, he beat Vernon Tiger White and, and Jeremy Horn and, and Hanatu Babalu Sobral. And that was it. So, uh, well, I think with like Matt Hughes, there was a time when it was, we were talking about Matt Hughes as one of the most dominant champions, uh, definitely the best welterweight champion. We don't even talk that anymore. No, you know, George St. Pierre, definitely a better welterweight champion than Matt Hughes. Um, Anderson Silva, a more dominant champion than Matt Hughes. So he has lost some of that stuff that he, he laid claim to at one point. Uh, it does make me wonder if, like when we look back, more so than even right now, that we will lump Matt Hughes in as like, yeah, you know, an early UFC or kind of a, a, a little bit of a leather helmeter, uh, <laughs> to use that, that NFL analogy. Which is a good analogy for Matt Hughes because you can really imagine him wearing one of yeah. those leather helmets and wearing no. one of those striped sweaters with yeah. like tiny shoulder pads. Playing for Yale in 1920 or something. Yeah. yeah. Refusing to use the forward pass. <laughs> yeah. No, you can totally imagine him doing that. Uh, so, I mean... I do think that when we look back, we will kind of we'll have that perspective on Matt Hughes. Like, 
He was the best before shit really got serious uh, in the UFC. And then, you know, he held on for a little while after that. Like, is that good enough? I mean, I would think for a guy like Matt Hughes, probably not. He probably would be upset with that characterization. Um, however, that does feel fair to me. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and really a guy who got old at about the time athletes are supposed to get old because, you know, once Matt Hughes hit 33, 34, it was kind of like the end of the road pretty <laughs> pretty quickly. And, and he had a couple of fights there towards the end of his career where it was fairly clear that uh, he wasn't going to be able to take anybody down. And if that doesn't happen, it's, it's, it's going to be lights out. Yeah, like the Josh Koscheck one, I think. I'm glad that, that he ended after that one because – that kind of stuff was probably just going to keep happening to him. And it was becoming an all-too-popular thing to call out Matt Hughes. Yeah, uh, no, it really was. It was becoming like kind of unseemly, yeah, honestly. Yeah. It, was, it was just kind of a bullshit move on the part of whoever did it. Like all the AKA welterweights did it. Uh, and Koscheck was the only one who actually got to fight him. You know, Dan Hardy, when he needed a win, starting to, to look around at Matt Hughes and, and think about, a, hey, that one seems like it'd go my way. Uh, when that starts happening, it's kind of the same way like everybody's using now VADA as their thing where if they want to find a way to accuse their opponent of being on steroids but without actually saying it, they'll just like, hey, would you agree to VADA testing? Which is basically like, you know, calling you a cheater. Um, so, yeah, probably good to go out when he did. Uh, what I wonder is, what do, what do you think Matt Hughes fills his days with after that is farming. it all is it all farming farming and riding around trucks in the mud and shooting shotguns Putting new stuff? siding on the house farming chasing he, chasing his brother to the mailbox <laughs> you think he's gonna be happy satisfied with that i do man i mean really? like it, you don't think he'll like you know it'll be one of those things where two or three years from now he'll get bored and be start talking about a comeback no, I feel like his entire career matt hughes was always pretty honest about the farm being his first love you know placed in the hierarchy of love above even his wife or his children uh, and certainly above <laughs> mixed martial arts. So I think, I, I think that that's one of those things though. That's easy to say. I, I, no, but I, I mean, I believe the guy, I think Matt, Hughes is the kind of guy who puts some money in the bank, buy a new tractor. He's, he's good. He's going to be fine. I seem to recall you telling come me, come and go on a hunting show now and again. <laughs> I seem to recall you telling me about an awesome Matt Hughes quote. Um, from when I think it was after maybe after a trig fight, like in the press conference, uh, where somebody was asking what he's going to do with his bonus money or something. He said he's going to get new siding for the house because <laughs> his wife wanted it. And when mama's happy, everyone's happy. <laughs> yes, that's the quote. When mama's happy, everybody's happy. Yeah. I also recall, as long as we're telling awesome Matt Hughes quotes, uh, when I talked to him once about his perspective on pulling out of a fight injured and. I think this captures a lot of the Matt Hughes mindset. He was talking about how he had had to, to talk Robbie Lawler out of taking a fight when he had either a torn bicep or a torn pec or something, some kind of big important muscle that was torn. And he had to sit Robbie Lawler down and be like, look, you just can't fight like this. Like, I know you, you said you're going to fight, so you want to fight and you want the money. Um, but this is just not a good idea. Sometimes everybody reaches that point where they, they can't, they're too injured. They can't fight. And he said after he talked to him, then finally Robbie was like, okay. And then I asked him, like, well, what do you think it would take for you to reach that point? And then he went on a diatribe about how he would never, ever pull out of a fight. Oh, Jesus Christ. I was like, well, you just said. <laughs> like, you just think that these rules, like, don't apply to you, you know, that other people might get so injured that they can't fight, but not Matt Hughes. Uh, which tells you a lot about how he managed to be as successful as he was uh, in 
uh, his UFC career. Also tells you a little bit about how at times he managed to come off as insufferable as he did. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's do just saying stuff, and we'll we'll uh, wrap up this episode. Uh, ben, what, what's your just saying stuff for this week? I'm just saying that after Chad alerted me to the existence of the Tank Abbott Scott Ferrazzo fight on the old YouTube, in which two fat old dudes fight in somebody's backyard, uh, wearing MMA gloves and gym shorts and rolling around on the leaves in what is just a terrible, ugly insulting display really you know 10 plus minutes of just breathing hard and a couple punches being thrown if you go and you watch this video on youtube the top comment at the moment that i'm looking at this right now reads this is awesome two guys just having a good old scrap knowing they're well out of their prime and just because it is fun just a fun fight dude i'm just saying tank abbott scott ferrazzo there's another fun fight. Just a fun fight, dude. Just saying. Just saying. Uh, I'm just saying that this past week I watched the ESPN documentary about the 1988 Seoul Summer Games and the 100 meters race when Ben Johnson of Canada won and then later tested positive for steroids. And I believe something like seven out of the ten guys in that championship heat eventually at some point during their career tested positive for steroids. And if you're my age, is sort of like the first high-profile steroid scandal that you may actually remember. Um, when Ben Johnson tested positive for, for steroids... Uh, his excuse initially was that a doctor had unknowingly injected him with steroids. Huh. And during the lead-up to the games, this documentary would at least have us believe, Carl Lewis also tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, and his excuse was that he was taking a supplement that he didn't know contained a banned substance. Huh. So... MMA fans out there, when it's 2012 and you hear fighters saying that a doctor un- unknowingly injected them with performance enhancers or they were taking a supplement that contained a bad, banned substance and they didn't know it, just repeat to yourself in your head, 1988, dude. 1988. Just saying. Just saying. Shit anyway, that is the co-main event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast for this week. We'll be back again next week to wrap up, discuss, hash out, make jokes about... Uh, in other ways and analyze the world's mixed martial arts news i'm chad dundas from espn.com that's ben folks from usa today and mmajunkie.com and that's it we're done we're out hey how much do you think it would cost to get king abbott to come to our christmas party hundred dollars and we'll both fight it oh wow okay i didn't you know that was gonna be part yeah. of the bargain uh how much would, would you pay me i guess would be my first question